you have an annual review every year for that. <laughs> I'll tell you what, since, you know, since I retired, they something came up and on the uh, on the company phone, mm-hmm. they gave me a phone and the computer and stuff. And I'm talking to them. It went down, had to come back up. They said, well, who's your supervisor? And I said, I don't have the slightest idea. <laughs> That's a good question. And it took about a half an hour to determine who is on, on paper. Yeah. And it can't be Rob because of, of nepotism. Mm-hmm. So they just, they had somebody on hold over here, and they called them, and they didn't know they were my supervisor. <laughs> That's awesome. And we've been doing this for, what, seven years now, six yeah, and a half yeah. years I'm retired. Yeah. And he's like, uh, Bill, I'm going to need a quarterly report from you. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. That's, that's coming. That's yeah. good. That's good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another brand new episode of Bourbon Pursuit. And as usual, we've got some news that we would love to go through first before we get kicked off with the episode. Now, we've been talking about it for a while. The bands have been announced. Bourbon Beyond is making its second appearance here in Louisville, Kentucky. You got Lenny Kravitz. You got John Mayer. You got Sting. You got Cheryl Crow. And you've got Bourbon Pursuit. You've got Blake from Bourboner. You've got Fred Minnick. You've got Brian from Sippin' Corn. There's all kinds of bourbon personalities going to be there from every single distillery so you've got to go get your tickets we've got our affiliate link available on our twitter handle as well as on facebook and you know what i'll go ahead and put it on the website too so if you want to get your tickets to bourbon and beyond make sure you go to bourbonpursuit.com use our affiliate link i swear we don't get any kickbacks this is just an opportunity for us to be able to show that we're helping drive some audience and getting people there to the greatest bourbon festival that there's ever going to be. I mean, this thing's going to be huge. Uh, Bourbon Pursuit, you know, we're going to be there doing two of the workshops. We've got one talking about the rarest whiskey in the world, doing private barrel selections with Larry Rice, Danny Wimmer, Drew Colesveen, and Jane Bowie. We've also got another session called The Audacity of Source Whiskey featuring John Foster, Josh Quinn, Marion Barnes, and maybe a few other special guests that'll be there. We'll see what happens. So tickets are on sale now. Go to burnpursuit.com, use our link on the banner there, and go and get your tickets. Patreon shipments are continuing to go out this week. As usual, we're going to be continuing to keep putting these out as much as we can. I know we're getting a little slow on some of these. It's just there's a lot of them to get caught up on. But I promise we will get them to you and you will get all your stuff. All the $10 ones have gone out. Now we're hitting the $5 ones. The update now we have so our barrel aged beer that we've been talking about we collaborated with third term brewing here in louisville kentucky and it was actually on tuesday this week i was actually go to able to go to third turn and be able to take our imperial aged stout that is going in at 12.2 percent and it's going to gain an extra few percents uh, as it's sitting there aging in the barrel over the next few months here. So there's going to be some, uh, it's going to be a delicious beer. All right. I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to be awesome. Uh, there is actually some, we filled two different barrels. We had the bourbon, uh, sorry, the bourbon community roundtable Buffalo Trace barrel that we filled as well as an additional Heaven Hill barrel that we came across that we filled that as well. And there was some remaining. And so that's actually going to go on tap soon at 
third turn. I'm gonna make sure that I post that for anybody that's here in the Louisville area that wants to go check it out. Make sure you follow us on all those social media sites and you can get those updates. I'll continue to give updates about this barrel aged beer project as we continue to go along, when it's gonna be available, when we're gonna have a tap night, when we're gonna be there, and when you can get your own bottles as well. It's derby season around here and Woodford Reserve is back as another proud supporter and presenter of the Kentucky Derby. And they have announced their 2018 $1,000 mint julep cup and recipe. And this year's experience is presented under the theme of Best of Kentucky. It was crafted by Woodford Reserve's newly appointed assistant master distiller, Elizabeth McCall, as well as master distiller, Chris Morris, who have both been guests on the show before. All proceeds from the $1,000 mint julep cup are benefiting the Jennifer Lawrence Arts Foundation. You know, talking about today's episode, I'm really surprised that it's taken this long to get Bill Samuels on the show. He's one of the funniest, uh, quirkiest, and almost one of the, he's a really honest guy in bourbon too. And it's, he's just a, he's a great character. And he's, he's definitely one of those great legends that, you know, wasn't necessarily in the distilling business, right? He was in the marketing business. He was in the selling business and he really helped grow this to where it is today. You know, he took his father's dream and really made it uh, into a, a global and recognized brand. So today's episode is a, is a real treat. And if you want to check out all the Maker's Mark episodes that we've done before, you can actually go to our website at burnpursuit.com. There's a tab at the very top and you can actually sort every episode by a current distillery. And of course, Maker's is on there. So go check that out. Remember, if you like what you hear, please support us on Patreon. We've had a lot of new signups coming on recently, and maybe that's in anticipation for another uh, barrel pick announcement we have going on. I'm not too sure, but we haven't, it hasn't started leaking out yet. But, you know, we have bottle totes, we got patches, we got T-shirts, and, you know, we've got barrel picks. We're going to be doing hopefully four to six, maybe eight a year. We'll see what happens. But, you know, having access through that, through Patreon is, is how you do it. So make sure you go and you check out patreon.com slash bourbonpursuit and help support this show. As usual, follow us on all those great social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get updates on everything about what we're drinking and maybe the barrel-aged stuff as well for the beer. There's going to be a lot of cool things that are going to be coming. Subscribe to us on all the ways that you can get access to these episodes on iTunes, YouTube, Facebook. Keep those iTunes reviews coming in. I can't tell you how awesome it is to be able to see all of the honest reviews that come through there, whether they're good or bad, you know, we take a lot of that to heart and we try to make every episode better and better as we continue to go along. And it's it's feedback that really gets that happening. And really, I think when we see a lot of those five-star reviews of people that love the episodes and they love our guests, it, it really helps uh, cement a lot of the things that we're doing. So thank you for continuing to do that. And as usual, go to birdpursuit.com, subscribe on to us for email, and get every new episode in your inbox, 7 a.m. every Thursday morning. 7 a.m. Eastern, by the way. But with that, enjoy this week's episode. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits 
and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Give 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 000 from their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean, instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to noseyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Welcome back to the episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Today, Kenny and Ryan are here. You know, we're not actually in Loretto. We are in Louisville, but we are at the offices where we have actually interviewed this man's son on the program before. It was, uh, it had been at least 50 episodes ago or longer than that. Yeah, and he must make you nervous. You like fumbled on, on your intro. <laughs> no, so I we had to redo right it. off the box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I never do that. I'm yeah. usually on my game today, right? But, yeah, well, I mean, he, it should. He's one of the icons of the history. I mean, you think of Bill Samuels and Maker's Mark. It's like the most iconic brand and name in the industry. Mm-hmm. I know? mean, it's and I love coming to anything with Maker's Mark because you get to see a lot of the, the cool artwork and the things that have been done through the the design agency they've used. It's just, it's just. Uh, I, I, I'm always taken away by how good it really is, right? Because I, yeah. even today, I was actually driving along. I know we're recording this around Christmas time. might come out a little bit later, but there was a good one that had an old Woody with a, a Maker's Mark bottle strapped to the top of it, right? Yeah. And it, it's, it's like it even has that Christmas feel to it. Yeah, I love those. I remember the ones on the Spaghetti Junction said, like, low and slow like the spaghetti you know made slow and slow like the spaghetti junction or you know (laughs) there's just tons of them that are like they have the best ad agency ever i know (laughs) it's good but you know we're not going to talk too much about the ads today we're gonna we're gonna talk about the man behind the brand the man who helped uh you know Mm. build it to where it is today and uh you know maybe he's playing the links a little bit getting out some golfing in his retirement too so too much (laughs) not too much so today in the show, we've got Bill Samuels. Bill is the chairman emeritus uh, of Maker's Mark. He also just likes to be that cranky old man <laughs> they call Bill at the Louisville office. He just wanted to be called retired. Yeah, he's retired. Yeah. Uh, he's probably got platinum or diamond status on Delta. I mean, he's probably all over the place. So, Bill, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Good to be here. So, you know, we, we, we talk a lot on the show about people and where they come from and 
Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of what we want to do with this because, you know, we had Rob on the show and Rob kind of talked about where he came from and, and how he kind of grew up <laughs> he in came the from ranks. You. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But how, how he kind of came up in the ranks. And so I kind of want to get your, your side of the story, right? So how did you, um, you know, how are you following either in your dad's footsteps or, you know, part of the, um, just being a part of the distillery and stuff like that. So kind of kind of trace us through that that part of history. Well, I'm the only one that's been through two executive transitions in the company. Uh, uh, Dad and I had the first one, and then Rob and I had the second one. Uh, Rob and I were are uh, much more alike. That was pretty simple, and we had a going concern. Uh, back... Uh, with me, I grew up when we were out of business, and uh, Dad had gotten out of the Navy and was going to retire and work the farm and just kind of take it easy, and and uh, that got in the way of Mom's plans a little bit. He was underfoot, so she kept suggesting he get a job, and he never did really want a job after he got out of the service, but he always did want to see if he could improve dramatically on the family whiskey, and it in a sense, it was a good time to do it because it was in the, it was in the, uh, the, uh, the pits. Mm -hmm. uh, bourbon was was uh, uh, really low, being replaced by Scotch whiskeys, vodkas were coming on California wines, and bourbon pretty much was at its end game. And it 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 looked like from the outside in that well, who's going to shut the lights off? Distilleries were going out of business one every three or four weeks. Opportunity. There's not much you can do with a distillery except make whiskey. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Dad was able to find uh, the one he wanted to experiment, and that's what it was. It was his retirement hobby for $35,000. And that little place has become the epicenter of bourbon tourism and, uh, and is where every drop of America's iconic Maker's Mark is made. And it all started because mom on his rear end out of the house. <laughs> just go do yeah. something. And he was and he was able to pick up a facility. It, it was run down. But uh, uh, he was a depression baby, so he knew how to make a nickel work. Mm -hmm. And got her fixed up, got started, and had some good help from the other, uh, a number of the other distillers to help him figure out how to make the kind of whiskey he was looking for. And just... And he just paid attention to what he was doing, didn't pay too much attention in the marketplace. Mom would dip in occasionally and rescue him, like designing the package and, and helping fix the place up and all. But, uh, I mean, he was uh, he was fat and happy. <laughs> and then it got disrupted when I came. That is that what it is? Yeah, because yeah, he was the, the craftsman, right? Yeah, and, very and much so. you're like— you say kind of the entrepreneur or whatever. How did yeah? You said you clashed. Did y'all butt heads? Well, it, it was so different uh, philosophies. Doe Anderson rescued us because <laughs> we danced around the fact that we saw the world differently and communicated differently and had a very different sense of urgency and and all of that. Uh, and I forgot to realize this was his hobby and not mine. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that created a little angst. But what really made it work was we finally decided to hire an agency not to do ads, but to teach me how to do my job. Okay. And uh, we really got lucky early. Uh, brought in Doe Anderson who, in Louisville, who we still have, and they're still doing marvelous work. 
And a fellow named Jim Lindsay got attached to me. And his, he was a young marketing guy, whiz bang. And he was, he was going to teach me how to do marketing. And we decided, he decided, and I agreed with him, that what we really needed to do is to try to find out what was on Dad's mind. Because he, he preferred doing his thing rather than telling us what exactly he had in mind for yeah. this, this little brand of his. Read between the lines, right? Yeah. That's what he wants you to do. He wanted us to figure it out, but he didn't want us to he misinterpret. Man- he didn't <laughs> give you a manual? Or, you know. <laughs> he didn't want to write the manual. Yeah. So uh, Just tribal knowledge. Jim Lindsay and, and I, mainly him, uh, figured out how to get in his head and ask him a whole bunch of open-ended questions that we were able to put together, which defined his baby, uh, what it was, uh, brand personality, the tone and the style of communications, if he was going to feel comfortable with them, uh, who the customer might be, what they might look like. And I mean, and I don't think Dad ever really knew what we were doing, but it gave us an opportunity to figure out what the hell he had on his mind <laughs> yeah. and then try to figure out what we could add to it that wasn't totally disruptive and in the opposite direction. What? And oh, sorry, go that ahead. was the key to everything. What was his original vision? Was it just of the company? Was it what well, it is today, or did you all have to help him get there? Or well, it? I don't know that we have to. He was, I think, he'd have been very happy creating the world's best whiskey, then retiring and shutting the door. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really do, and that's that might be an oversimplification because the fact is, all our customers were in Kentucky for the first twenty-five years. And he loved it because he ran into a bunch of them, and they all loved what he was doing. And that was a, yeah. you know, that's a big ego boost, and that's, well, you know, that was the satisfaction. Mindset, you know? It was the technician's mindset, uh, and our job was to figure out how we could add. It was would there be any any way that he could tolerate that would allow us to try to commercialize in an appropriate way his vision and his his baby. The first thing we we had to figure out was was uh, uh, how did he see the baby? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that, was, that was one of the brain farts we had. Rather <laughs> than ask him to describe the baby, we went and asked his three best friends to describe him. <laughs> and then we got him to approve it. He said, wow, you got it right the first time. We never told him that what we had described was him. Yeah, that's funny. And this was his little bit. And that, that got us off to a really good start. This sort of reminds me of of like a family recipe of like pasta sauce, yeah. and then all of a sudden, <laughs> like somebody's like, "Oh, you should you should go bottle this and go sell it, right?" Like it's kind of like it's a little like, bit like that. It yeah, is. It, yeah. Kind of, I don't know if you're familiar with the show The Prophet on CNBC. He invests in, but there's oh, a sure lady that had a yeah, biscuit yeah, company out in South Carolina, and he's like, "We got to take these biscuits global," and she's like, "And but we got to tweak it a little bit so we can sell it in stores and have." And she's like. You know, she's the technician. She's like, no way. No, little, we're not messing with it. A little bit it. of freaking <laughs> out. Yeah. Sounds like that. Yeah, exactly. That's what it reminds me of, yeah. yeah. But now it sells everywhere, you know, and it was a good decision. I mean, you had said that the original investment his retirement was 35000 I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of a lot back then, right? I mean, that's well, today you're, you're looking that, into that. That wasn't the, the investment. That was the investment to buy the facility. Yeah. And it wasn't quite operational, but where he tricked mom was the real investment was he was going to have a number of years before he had anything to sell. So the working capital that would be required for just uh, grain and barrels and energy and people and all uh, 
was was way over a million dollars just to make one batch a week. Mm-hmm. And it was one small batch of 18 barrels a week. Was he able to get that from investors or was it self-funded? It was self-funded for about the first six and a half years. When he went on the market, there was a there was a little initial response which gave the banks enough confidence. Right, I wasn't much. It was all it was all in Louisville, to be honest with you, and uh, and that uh, that allowed him. Once he got the working capital up to a million dollars, he had he had about all we had in the family in in the hobby, and he was beginning to have enough confidence that there might be a few customers that w- would want to buy some. But they had to find us. There wasn't any chasing them. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I mean, do you think, was he really betting the farm at that point? Or was it, was, as you'd said, he was just kind of like a retirement hobby, but it sounds like it was, it, I was, think kind, after, of, it was kind of all in at one point. Uh, well, now I was off, you know, I was in school, uh, high school and college and, and then working in the aerospace industry and all it, as this was going on, I know mom was nervous as a whore in church because <laughs> <laughs> there just wasn't, there wasn't the lifestyle that there had been before. So in that sense, it, it did crimp things quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm a small business owner myself, and we're, in our, we're having our 10th year anniversary. And, like, I stress over, like, $1,000 decisions, but, like, I couldn't imagine million-dollar decisions. What what was it like, you know, in those early days? Like, you, you have this vision of where you want to go, but you got to make these decisions, and you're like, how do you make those? And Well, well let me tell you what the uh, – the banker, who was one of his best friends, and who he asked to serve on the board, and couldn't do it because he knew he wouldn't be able to give it, to get any money out of the bank. Uh, the way the banker explained it to Dad is he had this wonderful idea and was, and how he was going to make this wonderful whiskey. Uh, now I remember this is back in the early fifties, and the banker told him, "You know, Bill, I have been." I have been working for five years on this new strand of Brussels sprouts, and they're wonderful, and they're just now coming to perfection. I'll get you some. Well, he knew my father couldn't stand Brussels sprouts. <laughs> so Dad said, well, I don't want that. He, And the man said, that's your problem. People have already decided they don't like bourbon. They're not going to be interested in a better-tasting one. Yeah, mm-hmm. He said, it ain't going to work. And if it hadn't worked in Kentucky, it never would have worked anywhere. Yeah, sure as shit wouldn't have worked anywhere else. <laughs> no, and think think about how few things of style and fashion start here and emanate outward. I would think it'd go the other way. Usually style and fashion starts in New York or California and works it, their way inward, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. N- never here in other way. Yeah. So this, I mean, the odds of this getting, the odds of us being able to commercialize it outside of Kentucky were, were not good. Mm-hmm. Even though the whiskey was great and it was getting great reviews and all, and everybody loved it in Kentucky, and they're all talking about it and taking it to friends like like Coors Beer was back in the early 60s. Yeah. So talk about, like, the next stage in life for you right here. So you had mentioned that, you know, this was kind of all going on in high school. Uh, and then talk about a little bit aerospace. Like, what were you doing in aerospace at the time? And where'd you go to college? What was your next job out of there? Well, uh, Jim Beam taught me herb convinced me to go to engineering school. He was our next-door neighbor uh, when I was a kid and and my grandfather's best friend, wonderful man. And uh, uh, Dad was an engineer, and I was pretty good in math and science in high school, not so good in anything else. 
And so I went off to Case Institute of Technology, which is now Case Western Reserve up in Cleveland. And they, almost the day our freshman class arrived, Eisenhower created NASA. Oh, yeah. And they took the president from Case to be the first director of NASA to put it together. But he never left. He, he took a leave of absence. So we were pretty hyped up at Case. We were, I guess, one of, if not the first, of the engineering schools to go all in for the aerospace initiatives. Mm-hmm. And he pretty much promised all of us that if we would go that route, he'd have a job for us or he'd get us in graduate school, get us fellowships and things. That was and things decision, around. right? Yeah, sure. Going I mean, to space, you got it. Checkbox, right? Let's do this. It was, I mean, it was all in. And it was, it was absolutely fabulous. So uh, after Case, I went out to Berkeley to graduate school. Thanks to... Uh, T. Keith Glennon, the president of Case, who had all these connections and was still the head of uh, NASA. And uh, while there, worked for Aerojet General as a research engineer and helped design the Polaris missile uh, thrust ejection nozzle for the second stage Polaris and did some work on the Gemini Mm -hmm. project also. Those are the two I spent most of my time on. And then then it became pretty obvious as more better young people came into the industry that some of us C students weren't long for it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when I started looking for an alternative and called my father. And I was the last thing he wanted at at that point in time. Really? Why's that? Well, I'm a little disruptive. (laughs) And he was having fun. And this was in the uh, this was in the early '60s, and he was getting pretty good reviews, and uh, was getting a, a, a lot of local action here in Louisville and Lexington and, and around, and was just but and that provided enough money for him to keep the smokestacks operating and and all, still making his one batch a week, mm-hmm. eighteen barrels. Yeah, gosh, it's hard to imagine, and uh, so he. Uh, he, we reached an agreement, I guess would be the best way to put it, <laughs> is if I would go to law school and get unengineered for a while, uh, that uh, we give it a try. Why unengineered? Did he just think you were going to? No, he felt, and I think rightfully so, he felt that if I was going to be effective, I had to be much more of a generalist and much less of a specialist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh he, I mean, he was absolutely right. So the, the law school helped. The summer internship in the White House helped. Working in the patent office one Wait, summer helped. What, a summer internship in the White House? Had we had we missed that part? Well, the 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 White House intern program uh, started with Lyndon Johnson. It, it was just a summer program. It did not start with Monica Lewinsky. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a summer program, and every, oh, you're full of good jokes today. Every no, every U.S. senator got one pick. Yeah. So there were a hundred of us that came, and there were only two that were not in high school. And so the other fellow and I, he was in law school also. So he and I got bored with, uh, with you know, all the giddiness and all. Mm-hmm. So he said, I've got, I've got a friend of mine over in the patent office. Wouldn't it be fun to work there? And I'm thinking, oh, two engineering degrees, this law school, this, this is be good. So we went over and visited with Mr. Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt Jr. was the Secretary of Commerce. So we just walked right in his office and told him how bored we were about to be. 
<laughs> in the White House, and could he help us out? We like the idea of having all the social events that the interns got, but we didn't care too much about the daytime activities. Mm -hmm. So he put us to work uh, for Commissioner Brennan in the patent office, and was it was he worked us to death. But it was absolutely fabulous experience. That's real cool, and uh, and that's and I was pretty much focused on on that becoming a career, not. You know, not to whisk. I'd kind of walked away from that, and uh, as I was, uh, it could have been your dad's like underlying yeah. motive. Was he like, it, "Thank God, well, he, he took the bait." He <laughs> didn't discourage bait. me. Let's put it that way. Yeah. He didn't discourage me. And then there was an intervention, uh, and the intervention was very subtle. It started about the third day I was in law school at Vanderbilt, because right across, if you go down the back steps of the Vanderbilt Law School, you cross Twenty First Street, and you go in this pretty ugly white six-story building that Jack Daniels had their offices in. Mm -hmm. And my father's good friend, Hap Motlow, was the chairman. So I was ordered to go see Hap when I got to school. And uh, uh, Hap became my my Friday entertainment for three years. Okay. It was it, it it was unbeknownst to me at the time. It was my introduction to the industry. It was it was my initial education about the industry, and Mr. Motlow was uh, he was Jack Daniel's great nephew. Uh, if you you know the the Jack Daniel's bottle, it says Lem Motlow, proprietor, right on the front of the label. It was his father. Okay. Okay. So when uh, Mr. Lim retired, it went to one of the older brothers, and then Hap had it in the mid-60s when I was down there, all through the 60s and early 70s. So I really got interested in the business, not from my father, but from Jack Daniels. And matter of fact, I, it was so subtle. I didn't know what he was doing, and I had accepted a job at the Bendix Corporation up in South Bend. Uh, to work in their patent department. Mm -hmm. was really excited about it. And Hap had bought me dinner every Friday for three years. So I, I come back, I said, Hap, we're going to dinner. I got something to tell you, and I'm buying. <laughs> that was that was my first offer to, to buy dinner. And I told him about my job, and he got this nasty look on his face. He said, no. He said, son, you're going to have to call them up <laughs> and tell them you're not coming. He said, he said, I've been putting up with you for three years, <laughs> and you're going to go back and work one year for your father, and then you go do what you want to. Take the bar before you go. So you've got that option out of the way. And I did. I, I took, graduated, took the bar in Tennessee, went up to Kentucky on reciprocity, and was ready to give a half-ass attempt at this Maker's Mark thing just because I had so much affection for Hap. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just adored the guy. And so that was uh, that was fifty years ago, mm, five months ago. Wow! So yeah. it's been fifty years and five months. So, uh, and I can't say Rob had the same excitement coming to work with me. <laughs> uh, Did you make him go to three different schools as I, well? To, I'm uh, a little well. I was. I'm just a little tougher. Dad, just everything's easy with him. You know, it's fun as long as you didn't mess up his craft. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, that was the lesson. Just don't mess the craft up. Have a good time. And if you find people that want to buy what you're doing outside of Kentucky, that's okay. But don't push it on them. Yeah. What was it during that year that made you want to stick with it and stay on? What ha How was the experience in there? Like, this is what well, I was, do. It, it was, well, the first thing was it was a lot of fun. It was, the, the frustration was that I didn't bring anything to the table. 
I mean, the last thing we last thing we needed was somebody designing rocket nozzles <laughs> in Loretta. Now there's the kinship between the the rocket fuel, but not the nozzles. So I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't bring much to the table, and Dad could see a little bit of frustration there, and and so that's when we brought in the agency trying to figure out, uh, and and we did some personality testing to see what would be the best fit, and and that was money well spent. Uh, so it really took about nine. Was that on the advice of the advertising agency? Yeah. To do the, okay. Absolutely. And that's when that's when we learned about each other. We learned about ourselves, uh, and why communication wasn't as easy. Uh, it's just we saw the world a bit differently. He saw process. I saw hard charging right. action. You saw Correct. rocket nozzles. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then, so what was what was that initial foray into it, right? I mean, you took these personality tests, try to figure out where do you actually fit into this yeah. this puzzle? What, where did you fit in this puzzle? Well, it was clear that at this time, uh, bourbon was in the tank. We didn't have any money to do marketing. And this is what we need to do. We need to hire another person no, 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 with no, a law this, degree. No, we actually found a slot. It just wasn't a well-groomed slot. Okay. Uh, the slot was that there are some personalities that are really good at making rock soup. I'm listening. I have no idea what yeah, you're talking about. What do you mean about. by that? Yeah. Making something out of nothing. Okay. Okay. And out of Kentucky, this was nothing. Mm-hmm. It's the last thing anybody wanted. So it wasn't that the skill set was there, but the personality test indicated that that what we had to do had to be very unconventional. Okay. And we had to have enough confidence in what we were doing in the early stages, even though it didn't make any sense, uh, and had the tenacity to push through the walls. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of walls in this industry because of the three-tier system and, and all the rest of it. Uh, and then I had the blessing or the benefit of having uh, the agency, Doe Anderson, and their talent, and they understood their role was to figure out how we can take Dad's baby out of Kentucky and do it in a way that he really felt comfortable with. What was that first step to take it out of Kentucky? It was that exercise. Well, the first thing we had to do, we had to find out what made him comfortable. Uh, the, the summary of that was his idea of a marketing strategy was sit on a rock and wait to be discovered. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And after our exercise, uh, Doe Anderson and myself, Jim Lindsay, uh, we believe there was an opening to move that sitting on a rock to maybe getting permission from him to manage the discovery process. Okay. And so we went to him and we said, okay, we got to do some, so we got to be like the duck. It's out in the pond paddling like hell, but you can't see it because mm-hmm. it's all underwater. And we said, we think we can do this. We think we can get a lot of important people and situations to to come to love and endorse and recommend and, and consume this wonderful whiskey that you've created. And we are willing to put handcuffs on ourselves, that's the two of us, and do it in a way that there are no fingerprints that manipulation is going on. So it will look like discovery, but in fact, we will be trying to seed discovery in an appropriate, good taste way, always with no fingerprints. 
now you're talking about Russian and fake news, right? This is <laughs> yeah. exactly what it is. Well, it, it, it may sound that way, but a lot of times it's just getting people interested. Uh, yeah, we tricked them a little bit to want to come to the distillery, and we tricked him to always be there when they were there <laughs> because they didn't want to see me. They wanted to see the creator. Mm-hmm. And, that, and then we just left, and it, it always worked out well. It's like a new, different version of the parent trap, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But that's how we got going. We the first time, uh, I, I called Ed. He he didn't like to do interviews and he didn't like to make speeches and stuff. And so uh, you don't either. I had a felt well. I've had to. I, we could never get him in Colonel Sanders' suit, so we had to put me in it. <laughs> and uh, we had a, a a fellow from the Wall Street Journal that wanted to come down and see the place. I'm not sure how interested he was, but he he had agreed to give us a couple hours or so. And I knew that it would be a couple of hours if it were me. So now my job was, how do I convince Dad to just be there? So I called him up, and I told him I had a fraternity brother of mine coming down the distillery. <laughs> would really like to meet him. Then I brought this journalist in. And and I knew Dad would be nice when the guy was there, and then he would disown me after it was over. But that was okay. Yeah. <laughs> and they they hit it off, and uh, Dave Garino's the guy's name from the Journal, and he stayed three and a half days with us. Oh wow! Wow. He stayed three and a half days with my father, not me. Yeah. <laughs> and he loved every minute of it. And that's you know that was a whole light bulb went on. Ooh, they like Dad even though he don't like them so much. Or he didn't. He didn't like the interference. What did y'all do in Loretta for three days? Go to like no, I don't know. I wasn't there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they they did go around and and visit uh, Bill Peterson, the uh, the farmer. Okay, yeah, yeah. And and went up and saw Ed O'Daniel, who was who was working hard to get us city water so we could have enough water not to make whiskey with, but to do all the non-contact stuff. Just little things to 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 make it look like a little bit of a business. Because it it really was isolated, mm-hmm. and uh, that's been that's been interesting to overcome that. Yeah, I, I'm I grew up in Bardstown. I felt like I was isolated there. So yeah, when oh, you go Bardstown's to, come of age now. Oh, now it has, but uh, I guess back in the day, yeah. you know. But definitely the past twelve years, ten twelve years, that's it's it's been an explosion. But about the last six months, yeah. But my family's from Howardstown, which is not too far from Loretto and Raywick. Um, What's your family name, Greenwell? Cecil. Oh, so okay, yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, talk about being in the middle of nowhere. That's, you know, it's just in the middle but of nowhere. But isn't that a beautiful drive? Oh, it is. It's, from Howardstown up to Raywick. It is. It's, I mean, it's a canopy almost the entire way. Yep, it is. It's it's absolutely beautiful. If you go in the spring or fall time, there's no prettier setting, in it's my ab- opinion. absolutely right. You just got to keep your eyes on the, the road because it's pretty Because you're in the creek. If you <laughs> yeah, <don't, yeah. laughs> exactly. No guardrails. So let's let's talk about that that next phase, right? So at this point, you've got the you've got uh, the Times there was the Journal, whatever you said it was, mm-hmm. and and so the name is starting to get out there. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon, and that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. 
Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. So let's let's talk about that that next phase, right? So at this point, you've got the you've got uh, the times there was the journal, whatever you said it was, mm-hmm. and and so the name is starting to get out there. Um, well, it did. It, it started in in one day. It wasn't like any marketing effort, right? It was like after uh, when Mister Garino went home, uh, he got the story put on the front page of the journal. That center column they had. And it was the first time the journal had ever done a profile of a privately held company. Mm. And it blew the roof off as, <laughs> as far as what's this all about. And so here was the, here was the conversation. <laughs> August 1, 1980. Here it is. And Dad, he said, that's a nice young man. That was really nice. <laughs> what are we going to do today? It was, it was like it was one sentence. I'm thinking, oh, shit. This is going to come along once every 200 years. Mm-hmm. The question is, how do we make hay out of this? So first thing that happened, we put in more phone lines in the office. We got yeah, my two sisters out of retirement. Uh, and Dad and I spent every Saturday and every Sunday for almost a full year answering people's inquiries. My job and Mr. Lindsay's job with the agency was to keep the plate spinning until we had some whiskey. Mm-hmm. Because all of a sudden, almost every good restaurant and and bar in the urban areas of the country, you know, the more sophisticated areas, they had to have a bottle. And the fact they couldn't get it made them want to have it, it twice as much. Yeah. So, And we didn't have it. And we weren't going to take everything out of Kentucky to satisfy New York and California. And uh, by then, it had become a very successful brand in Kentucky, but only Kentucky. Did- I'm oh, sorry. I was going to say, did your dad embrace it whenever you're like, all right, all these orders are coming in? Or Lindsay like, and I were like, sitting you, there. Why are you bringing all this to us? Uh, Lindsay and I were sitting Well, I'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> I mean, we're sitting there watching his reaction. We said, he, he this will be the moment when he will see that commercialization beyond Kentucky without screwing up the craft is possible. Because the only reason these people are interested is because of his craft, not because of anything we did. And he wants he wants to go get back to the distillery and talk to the talk to somebody down there about something rather. I'm thinking, oh shit, what's it gonna take? Mm-hmm. But once once we got going, 
And we said, Dad, we got to talk to these people. They're talking to us. This is, this is what you said. He said, we could talk back to people. We just couldn't initiate the conversation. And they're talking like crazy. I mean, the first week we had over 38,000 letters. And it seemed like that many phone calls. It wasn't because we only had five phone lines, but they were busy constantly. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, when, that's when it started. The way we reacted was as if every, every, cons- every interested, frustrated person was the most important person in our universe. And so these these letters and phone calls are these are these purchase orders? Are these people just no look, no I mean, no? What no, no, where the hell mail? can I find a bottle? Yeah. yeah. And the only positive thing we could tell them was next time you're in or around Kentucky, you got a chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, were you, when this all started coming in, did you have the infrastructure set up to handle it, or were you like, oh god, we, now we got to? No, we didn't have any distributors hardly. <laughs> the distributors started coming to us too. The same ones who wouldn't answer the phone now on an airplane coming to Loretta. So that was good, but, you know, realistic expectations. But what it did is when we did get whiskey, they knew the rules. Mm-hmm. You know, it was going to go out a bottle at a time to the better watering holes. Right. And so that helped us, gets the discipline built in before you've actually got any whiskey. So at what point did operations really start spinning up then to be able to start keeping up with the uh, the orders? Well, we started the next day making you know, ramp the uh, the distillery up as much as we <laughs> Who could. Who wants to get paid overtime this week, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, but it's it still took six years. Mm-hmm. So the the trick, sort of, was to promise people it's coming and not get trapped into telling them when, <laughs> because it was going to be a while. So I guess the. Um and I don't want to bring up any bad memories. So let's let's talk about to the point where. Uh, your father's passing, and you start mm-hmm. taking over the business. So kind of talk about that transition. Well, and- it wasn't with the passing. When it got to be more business than hobby, uh, uh, he turned it over. He kept the checkbook. Mm-hmm. But he turned a bit. It's because it, it, a lot of it had become external and uh, with bankers and uh, insurance companies and distributors and the agencies, public relations and advertising. Yeah. Uh, so we moved my office to Louisville, right? yeah. and then he he stayed on at, as I, I mean, he was the chairman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he stayed on as really the guardian because uh, he sure he wasn't positive that he could trust us even at that point, <laughs> and us being just the two of us, Lindsay and and myself, but we. Uh, uh, we really stayed true to uh, to what he was was looking for. I mean, we didn't. There, there, there was no monkey business. There was no aggressive behavior. It was all just talking to and trying to serve people who were trying to talk to us. And for six years, of course, we had this horrible shortage. Mm-hmm. So, kind of talk about when you're taking over. Uh, how how involved are you with the actual distillation process? Or are you saying like we, well, we're going to hire, I, we're gonna hire never, the right guys? We're going to make sure that. Oh um, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. We had to because we weren't thick enough in the very early days for me to become Dad's assistant distiller. I mean, my job, my job description when I got here was go find customers. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, you know that's that's what I focused on. So even with all this engineering background, uh, I possibly could have made whiskey in the very early days, but I wouldn't be a chance now. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I've forgotten everything. <laughs> <laughs> so did you have somebody like as an understudy or apprentice, you know, wow. No, dad had a an actually wonderful man, Sam Cecil, who uh who had worked It's a nice name for him <laughs> at what well, you're probably related. <laughs> probably somehow. <laughs> uh uh he he's got family over in uh uh What's what's that little place? Uh, Howardstown. Yeah, and uh, uh, he had been with my father at uh, the T.W. Samuels Distillery before the Second World War, and uh, Dad got him away from J.W. Dan and at just the right time because Sam knew the business, and he was you know he was my educator on the technical side, and it's a lot more than than making whiskey. I mean, you've got the yeast part of it, you've got the warehouse part of it, and uh, uh, just designing rick houses was a monster. But I, you know, I learned what I could, but I, I would have died if, if, if he would have passed on. Mm-hmm. Did y'all work with the Busick family back then? Oh, you had to, to. with Donald. The Absolutely, old, Donald yeah. Senior. Sure. Yeah, yeah, Donald Senior. Yeah, my best friend Lincoln. That was his grandfather. I'm friends with the family, but well, they're the best. I mean, without them, we wouldn't have an industry. Yeah. I mean, and they've they've really maintained a monopoly through this whole thing, because they've never rested on their laurels. They're yeah. constantly improving the process. They can throw one of those things up now, fifty thousand barrels. They can throw it up in three months. I've seen them on Bardstown Road with those heaven hill ones. Something? You're like, you're like, one day there's nothing, and that's you right. Come back two months later, three damn yeah. fifty thousand barrel warehouses. It's, it's impressive. Yeah. So talk about the growth of where Makers was um, when when you brought Rob into this as well, right? So you brought Rob in at some point, or how did you he's how been, did you groom him into kind of taking over a lot of your role, right? Because he he, he yeah. he's very much he's very much like you, right? Not more like like his grandfather, where he's well, not really like in the thick of it. He's he's more of the the books back office, the kind of the leadership role. Uh, he uh, he had the benefit, and it was a great benefit. Of when he was in high school, he actually worked at the distillery and stayed with his grandparents in Bardstown, even though we were living in Louisville. Now, Dad had kind of retired then, but uh, he got he he got a dose. You know, every every night they'd talk about it, or they'd go over, and Robert have a question, and it. So he he learned from his grandfather, which was the right one to learn from, because that was the founder. Mm-hmm. And he he spent two really valuable summers working over at the distillery when he was in high school. And then when I brought him in, uh, I insisted that he go do something right out of college that was different. Uh, Internship at the White House or something? <laughs> well, he didn't invite him. Our, our favorite senator, John Sherman Cooper, had had passed on so yeah. so he didn't he didn't have that opportunity but uh he went out worked in the industry got a job and did really really well uh he was out for 10 years and brought him back uh he was he was with us i think 6 years and then we worked side by side for 1 year which meant that he did 90% and I did 10% and was just available and then when i retired he asked if I wouldn't just hang around, that he'd give me all the free whiskey I needed. He'd <laughs> be like, I was going to get that anyway, right? Well, I'm not so sure. They've tightened up some of the yeah. stuff around here. Even you're on allocation. I'm on allocation. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So do you get 
I mean, so we're here in the office in Louisville, right? Like mm-hmm. when you go back to Loretto and you, I mean, because you've been around it for almost your whole life now, right? I mean, you've been around it for years and years. And so when you're here, when you ever go back to Loretto, do you kind of just stand around and look and say, you know, just take it all in or just in awe sometimes of of how much it's grown from where you were? Doing the personality very- test to now. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. From the, well, awe is the right word. Uh what is the most meaningful is not that it's grown, but how it's grown. And, and there is, there's not another distillery in the world that's imposed the discipline around how production occurs than we have. I mean, it's the same size operation. We're just making more mashes exactly the same way. We struggle with water. Uh, my God, we, I hate to think that tens of millions of dollars we spent on conservation just to be able to make our uh, whiskey from spring water there on site. And the, the amount of, of uh, partnerships we've had with the Peterson family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they started out as our grain supplier. They had 100 acres. Dad said, we're going to form a partnership. We're going to go forward. They got 17,000 acres now. It's yeah. been a great partnership. We lease some acres. My family leases some acres in Howardstown to them. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, they're something, aren't they? Oh, it's a huge, huge operation. It's- People go, they go through Loretta and they see all those elevators and silos. They say, my God, I think I'm in Iowa. I said, that's only half of it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you're somewhat retired now, right? I mean, that's you you try yeah. to you try to take in retirement, but you're here at the office with us today. So, what's what's your idea of being still involved and then also kind of enjoying your retirement? Well, the number one job is not getting away. And going back to the personality test, <laughs> that ain't easy. Yeah, I was going to say okay. how easy is that for you? It's not easy at all. But uh what's made it easy is that Rob's done such an unbelievable job. Almost from day, it, he's got a really good ear about the business, all pieces of the business. And uh, I, w- I was amazed. I, you know, I thought, man, I'm going to have to learn to, to bite my lip. I'm going to have to s- sit down and grunt and not, not yell and scream. And it never happened. And uh, I, you know, I give him a lot more credit than I do myself because I haven't. I have yet to taken the first suppository. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. So, like, who? Who is the go-to for the vision now, you know, because your, your parent company's Beam Centauri. Do they go to, you know, your son for that vision or are they kind of create or how's that work? It's all him. All him, okay. Yeah, the vision is it. And I, I uh, uh, with me, and, and I, you know, I was a little more of a bulldog. So I figured get it or get out of the way, even though there was a parent company about half of the years. And they kind of got out of the way, so I figured that's the way you do it. Rob's a whole lot more sophisticated <laughs> and much better at bringing the right people, all the people, into the vision. But he is absolutely the creator of the go-forward vision for this brand. And it's it's been nice. It's been really – if I'd have known it was that easy to get people's support around a good idea, I'd have spent more time being nice. <laughs> <laughs> Make more people yeah. with the honey and like, vinegar thing. Or yeah, it's like twenty twenty, you know. Yeah, yeah all vinegar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think one thing we actually we did accidentally kind of skip over was uh, part of the innovation that that you were involved with in in making Maker's Mark what it is today. So you had a you had a staple product for a very very long time, and then from what I understand is that Maker's Forty Six was kind of like 
your brainchild, right? That was my baby. Well, and Kevin Smith, who was our master distiller at the time, it was the two of us. And we didn't tell anybody what we were doing because we didn't want to ruin Kevin's career if it screwed up. <laughs> I was about ready to retire, so it didn't make any difference yeah, about I, me. You can fire me tomorrow. I got enough saved away. But the, uh, the idea was pretty simple. It was, it was, uh, gee whiz, we have spent all this time trying to take the uh, the heavy lifting mom and dad did in the early years and commercialize it because that was my, go find customers. That was my job description. It never, I never bothered to look around and say, is there, is there another job description? Because that's, that's what I essentially did for 45 years. And I went to Kevin and I said, you know, how about you and I just secretly going off and see before I retire, I've got a year and a half till I retire, Rob's going to take over. He's going to be fine. Why don't we just see if we can create what my version of Maker's Mark might be? I've got a couple of things that if I were doing it, I'd have done it a little differently. Not much, but little. And the one thing that was sacred between Dad and I was well, it had to be yummy. All the flavor needed to be in the front half of the palate. <laughs> that's quite the description. That's a good character. flavor profile. Yeah. <laughs> I like that's my, my, my kind of language. Well, and uh, people, people like stuff that tastes good. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that tastes good is in the front half of your palate. In spite of all these whiskey geeks that try to convince you this acquired taste is something really, <laughs> is really important. Well, you know, if it tastes bad the first time, it's probably going to taste bad the second and third <laughs> and fourth time, but they make a living doing that. So that's okay. But uh, I said, well, if we're, I think we, it needs to be yummy, but we could intensify the nose and the flavor. A bit. That would be interesting. No idea how to do it, but that would be nice, I thought. And the other thing is, what if we could add a long finish with no bitter aftertaste? Now, of course, that's an oxymoron mm -hmm. because a long finish and bitter are the same thing. So we weren't worried about that. We were just worried about what would winning look like. And that was that was the definition of winning. Had to be yummy, all, all flavored in the front half. Little more intensity, like makers on steroids, and a long finish with no bitter aftertaste. How do we do it? Is we that part of the business proposal plan, <laughs> like makers on steroids? That, that oh, no, point? I've still got the sheet of paper we did. Oh yeah, we said nobody's going to see this but us, so let's just you know let's be us. Yeah, and and let's keep it so we're communicating in plain English, because eventually we're going to have to hand this off to somebody to help us do it mm -hmm. for sure. Uh, and we. We screwed around with stuff, and it wasn't working. Different barrels with, with different flavors from other spirits and things. So we went up to see Brad Boswell, who is the owner of Independence Dave, who has made our barrels these 60 years, uh, he and his family. And we asked him. He said, here, what do you think? We, we showed him our little sheet of paper with the three criteria on it, 10 words. Can you help us, Brad? He said, no. <laughs> well, shit, we're, I'm folding it up, ready to leave. And he said, you know, but my sister might be able to help you. And she runs the half of the business out in California that makes wine barrels. Well, also, they have, over the years, they've developed a competency, the industry competency, for uh, flavor staves for wine. And the vintners are very interested in subtle flavors and 
and not so much interested in getting those flavors from other spirits, but getting them from how the wood is cooked. So it's it's a virgin process. We were fascinated by it, and they had PhDs and and biologists and and uh, uh, wood chefs. They call them all, and they they had millions of dollars tied up in these ovens, mm-hmm. and they had all the research findings from twenty years of cooking American oak, French oak, the two versions of French oak and European oak in different ways, and they had samples. And so we played a we just to get an idea of what could be created. Remember, we're talking about low proof spirit. It never been tried with a high proof spirit. Mm-hmm. So we weren't sure the analogy made any sense. They weren't sure, but they were willing to try. And so we went back to doing our business and almost forgot about them. And they sent us a sample the Thanksgiving before I retired in in June. And said, try this. It was perfect. How'd you do it? And they told us they use French oak. We said, oh, shit. Now we can't <laughs> call it bourbon. <laughs> and then we found out we could call it bourbon because it becomes bourbon before you install the French oak. And therefore, the the issue is, has it been disqualified? Mm-hmm. And it hasn't. So, but uh, that's how we got there. And then we, you know, ran into the issues Oh my God! Now we got to have a package and a name and all this stuff. Yeah, and so that's where the agency came back in, and Beam came back in, and 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 helped us. But before that, it was Kevin and I. Yeah, until we took those samples, you know, to a bunch of people and said, "Try this," and we got what we were looking for, which is wow. That's amazing, and we're still getting it. It's there. I think I remember a funny story that you said about like your name used to be on the label, but now it's like on the back or like almost coming. No, it's not there at all. (laughs) It's not there at all anymore. No, see, well, it's part of it. uh, Part, and this was more of a joke than anything. I told Kevin, uh, our master distiller that helped me, was that now really, Kevin, the reason we have to do this is when Rob comes in, the first thing he's going to do is take my name off the maker's side of the bottle and put his on there. Well, that's exactly what he did. <laughs> and I said, I got to have some legacy around here. I've been here 50 years. I mean, you got to show some respect for old people. And uh, and But that was that was a little bit of a joke. So when we did the packaging, uh, I told the package design firm, I said, you just pretend you're my mother. And then I spent an hour describing her, her idiosyncrasy. She was really smart. And she was she had really good taste. And we just talked about her. And then I said, now, your job is to pretend you're her, and this is her second encore. So, And they came back. We didn't change a thing. And then they, the other thing I told them was no paper anywhere on the label. Why? Well, I wouldn't tell them. I wouldn't tell. I said, you just do what I say and then come on back, and then I'll tell you why no paper. <laughs> so they came back, and I said, because... I don't want to have to put my name on this and then Rob take the damn paper off and put his name on it. So we're going to etch my name in the glass on the back of the glass. And we we did it, and it's still there. And that's I've been retired six and a half years now. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. That's then, a, that's it's a too story. big a pain in the ass to change, you know, bottling up. Oh, it is. Versus labeling. Oh, I knew that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, good. I mean, I think we've, we've definitely hit uh, a lot of the things that we wanted to know about the history of you, where you've been with makers, kind of like how you've led it from what your dad's 
idea was into the vision where it and it's really come into a global brand today, yeah. right? Um, do you have a few more minutes? We can talk sure. about the. It's, I kind of want to get your ideas about the industry as well. So, what do you? What have you? What's like kind of your overall thought process of where it's where it's becoming in the past six years until where it is today, and then kind of where do you see it going in another six to ten years? Well, uh, I like what I see. Uh, now, remember, I had early uh, early time spent in in Napa, going to Berkeley. And we spent a lot of weekends up there. Sonoma didn't exist at the time. And the only way we got in the in the wineries was Dad had to call them to get us in because they weren't open for tours back in the, in the early 60s. But I could see as people started to make investments in California wine, the type of people that were making those investments. There were two varieties, craftsmen and hobbyists. And rich bankers or well, old hedge fund guys, but they had a lot of passion. Yeah, I mean, they brought money with them. Uh, they had made it not unlike the thoroughbred industry in Lexington, those wonderful horse farms. But you had enough craftsmen to keep the focus where it needed to be. And I'm seeing exactly the same thing here with our with our seventeen or fifteen hundred craft distilleries that have actually started in the last four years. I don't know all of them, but I've, I've probably talked to a thousand, mm-hmm. okay? And it's a pretty good group. They're smart. They're young. About half of them are well-funded. Half of the rest of them will figure out how to make it work. The other half will die. And that's a that's pretty good odds. It's a lot of halves, by the way, Bill. <laughs> Well, <laughs> but I, I mean, I go back to 1953 when everybody was down. All the old smart yeah. people thought they had the way forward with bourbon was just do more of what you'd always done, and it wasn't working. Now there's a there's a new different ideas, and as everybody, the first thing out of anybody's mouth is, "Oh, we got a bubble coming." Let me tell you why I don't think so. I mean, we may have some short term stuff. Number one, we never had this many smart young people in the business as we've got now. Smart people are more flexible. Young people are more flexible. They'll figure a lot of this out, okay? But the big reason is it took mom and dad, it took Booker No with the, with the uh, 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 the, not the single barrel, the barrel small strength. batch. Yeah, the small, small batch, batch collection. Yeah. And it took Ferdy Falk and Bob Baranaskis at, at Buffalo Trace. It, it was called something else then. With their single barrel, it took what mom and dad did and what those two folks did to really hook up connoisseurship with bourbon. We couldn't have done it by ourselves. No way. We, I mean, we were first by 30 years or so. But before Maker's Bourbon was, was uh, swill and scotch was swill. Mm-hmm. We now are positioned in the minds of the public all around as an equal top shelf contender to scotch and more approachable mm-hmm. flavor and reputation. And actually tastes good. And actually tastes good. <laughs> well, but that's that's for the individual to decide. Right. So now for the first time, and this has just been in the last, I'm going to say 10 years, bourbon is poised to compete with scotch, with the better scotches. Mm-hmm. And for every bottle of fine bourbon sold, there's 
10 bottles of fine scotch sold. It's a great position to be in, and we're just now starting to penetrate the global markets in a meaningful way. So when you talk about that sales mentality, right, the one thing that I've always liked about bourbon is that it is a, it is a common man's entry point, right? A $35 bottle, a $45 bottle for a really good bourbon. When you get into a really good scotch, you're in the hundred dollar, hundred and fifties. Yeah, but they don't sell. I'm talking about the stuff that sells. Oh, exactly. But <laughs> right. this, this is a business, remember? But then there's there's also the the characteristics of supply and demand. When demand is really high and supply is really good, we could raise price and be able to make a few extra bucks. Well, that's right? tactical pricing. Uh, I think you'll see a lot of the smart people pricing strategically through the valley, through the highs and lows, because. The game is to beat scotch. Mm -hmm. The game is not today's short-term exploitation of a shortage. I mean, do you do you? So you think you're thinking more long-term strategy? You so, got to. Yeah. Well, I mean, how can you be in this business if you don't? Because what you make today, you you can't sell for six or seven years. I mean, if you would know better than I. I mean, is is there a good conglomeration where the heads of all you top ones get in the back <laughs> corner and you? It's kind of like uh, if you think about like AT and T and Time Warner all trying to figure no, out how do we no, how do we no, charge no, the right no, price place no, for our cable no, bill, right? No, I mean, no. how do you figure out what's the uh, what's the good going rate? And, and well, the way you figure out what's on people's minds is how much skin they're putting in the game. Look who's investing. How are they investing? And every smart person I know is investing. And they've all got different brand equities and different ideas. All of them go toward owning more of this uh, math share that's traditionally belonged to fine scotch. You said something really interesting about the, the poor man's entry into, okay, uh, when I was a kid, the poor man's entry uh, was a two ninety nine. A fifth of bourbon. Right. And it was on the bottom shelf of a liquor store, which meant that as they mopped their store, there was there was mop markings all over the label <laughs> of this stuff. Uh, I mean, those days are gone. Yes. I mean, not only the two ninety nine, but the people that are drinking bourbon. It's a it's a pretty young, sophisticated market. Right. And that's why I said I think I think the average consumer is not going to shy away at a thirty five dollar bottle. And even that, I mean right. the classification of a a super premium bourbon was at one point, what, 50 plus bucks, mm. 65 mm. bucks, right? And I think that's now going to start stretching up into the $150 range, right? So we can see that there are other distilleries that are trying to push that envelope, push the push the price points. Um, but it's still not in the regards of the, the high price that you can get in some rare scotches that are in the $1,000 marks, right? Yeah, a lot of those are for investment and trading. And and do you do you see a reason Kinda why— like Bitcoin. Yeah, right. there you go. Do you see a reason— <laughs> Speculation. Do you see a reason why bourbon couldn't get to that? Why why shouldn't bourbon start getting to the point where you, where you can think of a reason to create a $1,000 bottle that is a— trading a collector's item or whatever. Well, I think that'll be one more indication that we've arrived at at reputation parity to scotch. Mm -hmm. So you think it's a good thing that, that that'll get there, right? Because it, I, I think it's of, one of the pieces. Yeah, it's, we, we're already at the level. It's just, it just it blows out horizontally, and that would be one of the pieces that you'd want to check off. Do we have anybody putting $1,000 bourbons in really fine crystal, and is anybody buying them? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is yes, then check that one off and <laughs> right. move forward. 
So another kind of idea about the market. So, you know, you, you mentioned about craft a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I was talking about price points and craft. You know, when you when you look at what craft is putting on the market today, uh, I have yet to find a craft bottle of whiskey that's under 50 bucks, right? Most of them are towering around 80 to 100. Uh, but when you look at uh, the big the big dogs in the industry is that they they typically have a, a very good solid product for a much lesser price point. What what problem or what niche do you think craft is solving in the market today, or do you think maybe it's a little bit ahead of its time? No, I th- it's not ahead of its time. If you've got fifteen hundred new distilleries in four years, and they're in the, and it's a business that's that's very difficult to enter. So I think when I think of like the craft beer market, right? Like the craft It's a beer lot market. easier to enter that market right. than it is. Oh, ours. no, I, it's I not do. Close. But, but I think they also had the opportunity when everything was like a, it was all light beers, right? And then you have, now you have IPAs, you got Can't stouts, fight. you got all these different things, right? Um, where the bourbon market is, you had, for, for better or lacker term, you had a lot of really good age stock that is now getting out there and it's creating a viral sensation and people are loving what's there. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to figure out, do you really think that where craft can come in and play an interesting role that it's it's fulfilling a need that's not there today with inside the whiskey market? Well, one is uh, local pride, state pride. Take a place like Colorado and Texas where – Everybody wears their ego on their on their sleeve. Yeah, if it's hook them horns, right? If yeah. it's not made in Texas, we we ain't buying it. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's and that's a pretty big market in itself. Mm-hmm. Although I do think uh, some of the several of the craft bourbon stories have moved beyond the glass ceiling of state pride. So they're doing something right. I mean, you just. You got people that don't have all the baggage coming into the business. They got they got bills and they got obligations and they got investment, but they don't have history. History works both ways. Right. Yeah, it's just it's Kenny might have been alluding to this. It, for me, it seems like it's hard for like I'm not gonna go spend sixty, seventy dollars on a two year craft whiskey. Well, you I know too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> okay, true. well that's Fair that's point. easy. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, but you know, when I when people are just getting into it, I give them recommendations of, you know, the, the $20, $30, and then they're blown away by that. And uh, I just find it hard to believe that selling at these higher price points and it the product not delivering is going to create continued success, I guess. The- As the market gets more sophisticated, capitalism will work its remedies. It always does. Yeah. If we can just stay out of the way of trying not to tell people what to do. Well, Let them figure it out on their own, and they will. Perhaps, perhaps they need you need to create uh, Bill Samuel's uh, consulting services where you go and you oh try to figure God. out how do we create the sales for all these uh, these crap distillers, right? I get a lot of calls, and and most of them, I got to tell you, are disappointed at how few silver bullets I have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, they really are. They're, they're fun people. I enjoy talking to them. And you just tell them to go yeah. get customers. That's, what, <laughs> that's all Dad told me. God damn it, go figure it out. Sell, 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 sell. Yeah. You know, well, no, you got to figure out the right way, and that, and that, that took some years to to go in a way that Dad would feel comfortable, and he wasn't going to turn the keys over unless he was comfortable because this really was like a child to him. Mm-hmm. And plus. You're, you're not going to let Doe Anderson go, you know, help these other, far, you know. That's a good out. point. No, why would we want to do that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
That might be your silver bullet. <laughs> it could be. It could be. So we talked about where the industry's trending. We talked about the history. We talked about um, a lot of these good things. And I, I think this is a, a probably a good point to kind of wrap it up because you you've expelled a lot of good information about like I said, how you came and helped grow the business to, to where it is today. And I think we're, we're excited to see where, where Makers can be in the future, right? Everybody's everybody's always hyped to, you know, when Makers Mark Castrate came out, like everybody really wanted to get on that train. And then when everybody has the opportunity to jump on to get a, a Makers 46 private blend, everybody loves doing those as yeah, well. So, awesome. Oh, that's that's just been wonderful watching that happen. Yeah, yeah that's, that's brought and see, that was an makers, Well, that you know, was an extension of 46, uh, Jane Boyd and my father, or my, my son Rob, walked into, into my office and said, okay, this is your 50th anniversary here. What's been the most fun in 50 years? And I just didn't hesitate. I, creating 46 was, was by far the most fun. Mm-hmm. One year before the retirement, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we worked on it a couple of years b- yeah. before that. And, uh, and uh, Jane said, so what you did is you created your own version of Maker's Mark. I said, yes. They said, what if what if we could find a way to give some of our better customers an opportunity to create their own preferred version of Maker's Mark? You say, as long as my name's still in the glass? Well, I think they took it off <laughs> on the private select because I didn't have anything to do with it. And so that's how that happened. And it 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 uh, created a, you know, we had to find different solutions than just the 46 seared French oak slats. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had to have different different uh, flavor profiles. And they tested hundreds and hundreds and got it down to five. They're still, they've got a couple that they might add now. But that gives you uh, several thousand solutions. So everybody that does a private select at Maker's Mark, they get to pay a lot of money. And then they get to have something nobody else has. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I've heard. And they get to flavor it up. It's always going to be in the maker's DNA. The only thing we ask is that it not go where the geeks want it to go, which is way back in the mouth. You know, they will get over that, and everybody's going to get stuck with an awful lot of bitter whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good deal. So, Bill, I want to say thank you again for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure to to talk to you and and everything like that. you know, if uh, people just need to pay attention to see, maybe on social media, you'll be coming to their city and talking about something. So it's probably yeah. the best way that they can find you, right? Absolutely. Good deal. So if you like the show, make sure you support us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bourbon Pursuit. Subscribe on iTunes. Go write a review. Go follow us on social media, Facebooks, uh, Twitter, and Instagram. I was about to say Snapchat, but I was yeah. like, we're not on Snapchat. We're too old for that. Yeah. And, uh, at Bourbon <laughs> Pursuit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and if you have any show suggestions, comments, feedback, you know, just let us know what you want to hear and we'll we'll keep bringing you this content. So appreciate you listening and we'll see you next time.